And yes, all of these ancient texts have described events that would could be described as apocalyptic climate or environmental changes. Uh, you know, the Bible opens basically with um, the story of the great flood, and then it concludes with the apocalypse. The Greeks had their traditions of cataclysmos and ekterosis, uh, the belief in alternating destructions of the world on the one hand by water, on the other hand by fire. And this is found quite universally throughout um, all kinds of ancient traditions, this idea of alternating destructions of the of the earth. You know, the Mayans, um, the Aztecs, the Sumerians, you mentioned the Gilgamesh epic. And, and since um, 2003, evidence has been accumulating that something along those lines did happen 12,000, 13,000 years ago. And the geological community, the paleontological community has uh, going to great lengths to try to discredit that idea by any means possible. Last night I went to bed and I pretty much took it for granted that tomorrow was going to come. Every now and then I'll have the thought, what if my heart just gives out in the middle of the night and I never wake up? And as shitty as that would be, that is not the worst case scenario. That's because we're constantly taking for granted that our existence is completely and utterly connected to the existence of the vessel that we are living upon. And that is not something that is a foregone conclusion because at all times the earth is under constant peril from flybys of objects that are complete and utter 100% assured extinction of the human race. And from a cosmic perspective, these objects are flying right by our heads all the time. And if by some shitty roll of the space dice, one of them intersects with Earth, that is it for the human race. That is game over for the human race. And as long as we've known this unfortunate set of circumstances, it's been good for pretty much nothing because we haven't been able to do a thing about it. But that is not the case anymore. We have the technology, intelligence, and really good theories on how we could safeguard ourselves from these things. I'll spare you the details, and as sci-fi as that sounds, give it a Google search. There are real options out there now. But nobody is talking about this with any degree of seriousness. And if we do, it's actually laughed off. The only thing I can remember in recent history is Newt Gingrich talking about building a base on the moon and everybody deriding him on the nightly news for the next week. And unfortunately, if history is any good indicator of what it's going to take to really enter this into the conversation, it's tragedy. It's going to take a 9-11 scale asteroid destruction or a Japanese tsunami level or Hiroshima bomb level destruction. And that's extremely unfortunate and utterly terrifying. If you know anything about my guest on this show, Randall Carlson, uh, you know why we're talking about this. And you also probably know that he has a habit of unleashing a library's worth of insane esoteric information that he's gained after over four decades of study. He is an architect, a master builder. Yes, that is a real title, as cool as it sounds. Longtime Freemason, 
globe trekking independent scholar and a huge geology and history enthusiast among many other things and what i think is super unique about randall is he's managed to take all of these pieces of knowledge from all these different corners and disciplines and hone it down into one point of paramountly important brain piercing knowledge and that is that the ancients actually left clues about these world wrecking cataclysms and it's just a matter of time until one of those cycles of destructions occurs again unless we do something about it presently as widely sprawling and deep and multifaceted as this conversation is about to be there is so much more information over at Cameron and Randall's website, Sacred Geometry International. There is literally hundreds upon hundreds of hours of education over there that ties all of this together in a really cohesive way. And a lot of it is actually free. Um, so head over there, give them some support if you can. I know they're looking for uh, donations and they're looking to cast their net as wide as they can and really get this information out there. And also, if you want to talk to these guys, Cameron especially is really active on social media. Uh, he runs the Twitter handle at SacredGeoInt, and he is also on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash SacredGeometryIntl. We'll plunge into this thing in just a second. Uh, first, I will give you a quick rundown of what is going on with Midwest Real. As you may or may not know, we just launched a brand new version of MidwestReal.net. We are trying to get cool and interesting information out there on a daily basis, but that's obviously a lot of work. So we are seeking contributors. Um, if you are a writer or you just like to collect cool tidbits from around the internet, we would love to share that stuff and uh, get you involved. So get in touch with us on Twitter at Midwest Real or on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Midwest Real. And again, that new website is MidwestReal.net. Go over there, click play on a bunch of podcasts and articles. And if you are really feeling generous, click that donate button because unfortunately we do rely on those weird unbacked virtual freedom nuggets that we call dollars uh, or of course we also gladly accept the Bitcoin of course it would also be just wonderful if you would give us a sweet review on iTunes and subscribe and do the same on your stitcher playlist and without further ado let's plunge into what is without a doubt part one of one of the craziest and deepest conversations we've ever had on the history of this show hello my friends hey what's up man how are you doing good 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 to see you again yeah you too you too all right. I don't, um, Randall's just, uh, he's going to take the helm in just a second. I'm just making sure everything's squared away. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, pretty much right. Okay, sweet. Uh, thank you, Cameron. <laughs> well, yeah. Th thank you, Cameron. And thank you, Randall, for coming back on. We've had a few, we've had a few of these, uh, what I guess I've been 
unofficially calling brain melting conversations. And, uh, you know, uh, we had this, this author, Robert W. Sullivan. We went very deep with, uh, Marty Leeds when he was on the show, but I think the, the person who wears the brain melting crown without question is you, Randall, like our, our first conversation just, you know, I, I went back and re-listened to that conversation several times and it's, it's just so much interesting information. And, you know, we talked about everything from, uh, you know, what, what, uh, Cameron and I were just discussing before, uh, you jumped on here, you know, just correlations between astral bodies, units of measurement, biblical stories, history, geology, and just, you know, you, you have figured out how to connect these dots in such a, in a way that I've definitely never heard before. And I think, I think it's on one hand, it's tough for people to digest, but on the other hand, when you start seeing all these, you know, pieces that there's seemingly all this entropy between, and then they're just brought together through these common threads of numbers and, you know, history, it's, it's pretty undeniable evidence, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, you see the way right now we have, we're subject to an educational system that essentially works by fragmenting knowledge. I mean, think about your schooling. Think about how everything is compartmentalized, broken up into these subjects. You know, from the time that we're, you know, hit hit middle school age, you know, you, you're brought into five or six different classes, and you're never really told how mathematics should be connected with history or how that should be connected with social studies or how that would be connected with science. You go, you sit there, you know, for 50 minutes in one class, the bell rings, you get up, you move to another class. Mm -hmm. And, and so what's happening here is the, the way that children are being educated is that they're not being shown the unity of knowledge. They're, they're essentially the, the implication almost is, is that, you know, you have these different subjects, and you study these subjects and not these. For example, if you're a scientist, you don't necessarily need to know anything about history or vice versa. And so um, I think part of it starts out with just the way we, we educate young people is that they are not taught the unity of knowledge, that there's this underlying harmony and unity that, that ties everything together. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's what I'm trying to demonstrate is that there is this, you know, we can look at, um, you know, we can look at ancient cultures, we can look at, um, you know, traditions that have come down to us. Um, I mean, to me, one of the, the, the major dichotomies in our uh, modern thinking is, the, is the, the gulf between science and religion. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to show that, um, you know, in the ancient concepts of reality, there was no dichotomy between science and religion. Um, you know, generally you'll have scientists who will, in fact, I know some who, who, who are very scientific and rational when they're at work, then they go to church on Sunday and I'll ask them, well, how does the theology fit in with the science? And well, it, it doesn't really, it, I, I can believe this over here and then I can believe this over here. Whereas the traditions that I look at going back, for example, to, to the roots of Gnosticism, suggests that, you know, underlying what we think of as religion, there's actually a scientific basis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think 
the the religious quest and the scientific quest are seeking to answer the same questions. I mean, what was the ultimate origin of the universe? Where did life come from? Where is life going? I mean, if you start asking those very fundamental questions, you can both address them both from the religious domain or the scientific domain. And the studies that I've been doing over the decades suggest that, you know, there there is an overlap between those two domains. They're not discrete, segregated domains that have nothing to do with one another. Now, when it comes to politics and religion, absolutely. I'd like to keep religion out of politics altogether, but that's a different subject matter. Um, I'm talking about science here. Because when you go in and you start reading the, the, the sacred writings and they start talking about cycles, you know, if you go into the Vedas and you look at the, the yugas as they're described in the Vedas, you have these vast cycles of time. Well, you have these different cycles of time, and nowhere have I seen, maybe recently, some, some researchers have finally put the pieces together. But I noticed years and years ago that if you took the astronomically determined processional cycle, that is the procession of the Earth's equinoxes, which brings the, the Earth through the succession of 12 ages, it's basically around 26,000 years, give or take a few centuries. There's a traditional number that has been associated with that cycle, and that's 25,920. It's built into many of the, the Buddhist temples, like Angkor Wat is a preeminent example. But there's been some very scholarly work done showing how the dimensions of that monument actually encode these measures of time. But what's interesting is if you look at these the, the four major yugas, you have the, um, you know, the Kali Yuga, the Dawapara Yuga, the Treta Yuga, and the Satya Yuga. And each one of them are built upon this um, succession of numbers that essentially goes one, two, three, four, very, very much like what's known as the Pythagorean Tetractus. Mm -hmm. and, and if you look at the Treta Yuga, what you discover is that the Treta Yuga is actually 50 times the processional cycle. So... You know, the, the, the processional cycle, again, I'm using the, the traditional number, is um, uh, 25,920 years. Well, the Treta Yuga that we extract from the Vedas, and these things are thousands of years old, you come up with the Treta Yuga being 1,296,000, which if you do the math, you'll see that the relationship between the, the Treta Yuga and the processional cycle is 50 to 1. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that that's suggesting there that somebody built a series of time cycles, uh, built it upon the processional cycle. But given that these uh, the Vedic writings are 4,000 plus years old, the implication is that somebody that long ago had been able to measure the processional cycle. Right. And that, that was the whole contention of the, of the work by, um, uh, in Hamlet's Mill that came out in 1969, a, a seminal work that's been uh, quoted repeatedly by scholars of these kind of, um, you know, uh, byways of history, kind of the fringe areas of history. And mainstream scholars don't like Hamlet's Mill because it basically, if you accept the premise of it, we have to rewrite history, which essentially says that, you know, there these this sophisticated astronomical information that we presume uh, post-dates the Greeks, actually predated the Greeks by a millennium or more. Wow. And they're relatively conservative in that book, Hamlet's Mill, uh, Hertha von Deschand and uh, 
or the other author is not right on the tip of my tongue right now. Um, but but in any case, in 1969, they were proposing that, that the processional cycle was known at least a thousand years before the Greeks. Mainstream scholarship did not like that at all. Didn't like it because procession was supposedly discovered by Hipparchus around 300 and something BC. And that was the established chronology. That was the established timeline of history. It's the same, re same, same idea that why scholars do not want to go um, and accept the fact that the, the Sphinx might be thousands of years older than previous assumptions uh, ha have assumed. And, um, you know, right now the idea of the Sphinx is that it's around 42 to 4,300 years old. But, you know, as, as the work of uh, Robert Baval and Graham Hancock and John Anthony West and before them um, several others, uh, I think the first one was um, um, over the, um, again, his name is skipping me, um, but but he did the work back in the 1950s where he first pointed out that the, uh, uh, yeah, Schwaller de Lubitsch, thank you, Cameron. Okay. Uh, yeah. Schwaller de Lubitsch. Uh, in the 1950s, pointed out that the Sphinx looked water eroded, severely water eroded. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with that is that, you know, in the in the 4,200, 4,300 years since the Sphinx has existed, there has been really no significant rainfall on the right. Giza Plateau, you know, mm -hmm. two inches of rainfall per year. But the water erosion on the Sphinx is, is extremely severe. And so the implication of that is that the Sphinx had to have been there whenever the last time serious rains fell. So that you know puts it at least ten thousand years old. Well, Egypt conventionally just Egyptologists still don't want to accept that because again it it, it upsets the, the the carefully crafted timelines of history, which essentially puts us back you know Bronze Age preceded by the Stone Age, and we had ten thousand years of essentially primitive barbarism, and then this was followed by you know the ascent of civilization, um, and and. You know, when I was going to school um, back in the 60s and 70s, then the, um, you know, basically Western civilization essentially started with the Greeks. Mainstream scholarship has now accepted, yeah, the Sumerians and the Indus Valley culture and the Egyptians were actually doing things a thousand, maybe 2,000 years before the Greeks. But nobody wants to go back beyond that because mm -hmm. the written record begins with Sunayim, uh uh, Sumerian cuneiform writing, and um, the oldest I think examples of that are pushing five thousand years right now. But again, we got to remember that the human species, the modern human species, has been around for at least one hundred and fifty thousand years, maybe mm -hmm. two hundred thousand years, based upon skeletal remains of what appear to be modern human beings. So right there, that should tell anybody who's thinking about this thing that our recorded history is only a small part of the human story on Earth. And there's a whole lot more to it, what I think of as deep history, that has essentially been lost. And one of the things that I'm going to be doing uh, in September, when, when I, I'm going to go on a tour with Graham Hancock, of the, um, we're going to start in the Pacific Northwest, and we're going to traverse from basically the Pacific Ocean to, the, to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that'll take us across more than half the continent. And what we're going to do is we're going to follow the um, the margin of the great ice sheet that that mantled half more than half of north america down to about twelve thousand years ago and as we follow that ice sheet what we're going to be doing is documenting 
the um, the events that brought the Ice Age to an end. And, you know, with all of the talk in the last 10 or 20 years about global warming, nobody has been able to explain the global warming that terminated the Ice Age. And this was a global warming that was awesomely substantial. I mean, it was far in excess of anything that we've experienced, let's say, since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And one of the ways that that warming manifested itself was in an inexplicably rapid melting of the great ice sheets. And so, I mean, we're talking about uh, currents of meltwater coming off the ice sheets that have absolutely no modern parallel except for deep ocean currents on that scale. I mean, we're talking about water flows that would be equivalent literally like to the Gulf Stream, you know, that, that would be measured in hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of cubic feet per second. And that's that's unimaginable. I mean, mo- totally. almost nobody today has any concept of what that would mean. But what it does point us to is exactly, you know, the, the, um, the well, the basis for the criticisms of, of people like Graham Hancock and his work which has been documenting the accumulating evidence for civilizations that existed in prehistoric times. Um, And he's received a lot of criticism and condemnation for that. And and essentially, most of the criticisms boil down to this. Well, if there were these advanced civilizations and cultures, you know, back, you know, in prehistoric times, going back into the Ice Age, where's the evidence? Where's the hard evidence? You know, what, you know, what are we going to, be looking for? We're going to be looking for remnants of, of buildings. Would be we'd be looking for machines. I mean, what would we be looking for? Well, the thing is, is that even under normal circumstances, such as we've been experiencing in the last couple of hundred years, during since say since the ascendancy of modern science and and the and geology and archaeology as as professional disciplines, what we've seen is that even under normal circumstances nature has the ability to uh, recycle, to remodel the surface of the earth very, very quickly. And one of the things that I'm hoping we have time to do on this um, this trip out west is pay a visit to Mount St. Helens. Because here we had a uh, an event which, you know, 34 years ago, completely decimated the local landscape. I mean, literally turned it into a barren lunar landscape. And I remember I even have some of the various articles and commentaries written at the time about how it was going to be generations, maybe centuries, before nature was able to reclaim that, that decimated landscape. And, and now you look at the art. Within 10 years, um, you know, biologists and ecologists and, and others who were looking at that out there were, were, were shocked and surprised at how quickly it was regenerated. It's, it's almost yeah. like Mother Nature is asleep right now, and she has little stirrings like, you know, these volcanic eruptions, and we can't even conceive of what a full wake-up would be like, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, like the, these just crazy shifts in temperature, like you're describing, that just levy these massive torrents of water that we can't even conceive of. It's, it's we, I don't think that has... anyone has any idea what that would be like and you know going back to what you said earlier before we get uh too far away from it i think one of the biggest obstacles with trusting you know these ancient texts and you know these uh religious texts like the vedas and the bible is we've allowed 
fundamentalism to hijack any conversation about religion. Yes. Even even if it's between me and a friend, if I bring up any kind of, you know, something from the Bible or or something from the Quran or something, it their mind immediately goes there and it's a place that people aren't comfortable going. So I mean, how you know, it's and, and that's the way people like to view things. They like to view things as a black and white conflict where I'm rational, you're religious, I'm Bill Nye, you're some fundamentalist pastor that I'm debating. It's it, they they create these false narratives and paradigms of opposition in their in their minds. How do we get people past that so we can start considering these things that clearly have some real knowledge locked away within them? Well, I think you know, partially the answer to that question is what I began discussing about. It's the way people are being educated. Mm -hmm. you know, it's the way I, I, knowledge, which is a unity, is being presented as a fragmented, you know, as a fragmented system. And <clears throat> people are, you know, you go to school on the one hand, you go to church on the other, right? right and in right. church, we're basically being told, have faith. Have faith. Well, you know, the Gnostic tradition was faith is good, but don't, you know, don't give up your reason. You know, part of this, part of religion is knowledge. And, and you know, you can believe in a deity or, or not, but whether it's nature or, you know, impersonal nature, or whether it's some kind of a, 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 a theistic power up there that created us, whatever power created us, mm -hmm. we are endowed with brains that can think. And to me, I go, well, you know, this is part of our, our, our status as human beings is that we have to apply our, our God-given reason to addressing all of these questions, these fundamental questions. And again, we're, I, I, I kind of almost look at it as being a way of, you know, it's, it's the whole kind of principle of divide and conquer. But what it is, it's conquering people's intellectual abilities by through this artificial division of knowledge and and saying that there's you know on the one hand religion on the other hand science and never the twain shall meet and then you've got all of these other disciplines so if you if you're knowledgeable about statistics you're not going to be knowledgeable about the history of art so so the fact of the matter is is if you're not knowledgeable about science but you're 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 a student of religion but you have no scientific training you aren't going to see the science that's encoded in religious writings mm -hmm. um, and vice versa. You know, scientists will not generally look at sacred writings or, or scriptural writings, except as a, uh, uh, you know, there's what I was talking about earlier. There's kind of a disconnect there. You know, um, you can go during the week and practice your profession as a scientist, but then that doesn't overlap with going to church on Sunday and believing that these are two separate dom domains. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it, it starts, I think, by people having experiences that break down the barriers. I mean, I certainly know that I think that that's how it started with me back in the late 60s and early 70s, a variety of experiences, you know, from lots of different things, but primarily, you know, being exposed to um, spiritual traditions and consciousness-altering um, methods and so on, where you begin to realize that the barriers between these things are essentially illusory. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, by going into a state where you 
you perceive directly or experience directly the unity of knowledge uh, is really a good place to start. Yeah, I think it's so important to have experiences that break down the boxes of ideologies. There's so many yes, ideologies sure. we're living in that we don't even know that we're living in. I mean, th this entire society, it, it, even if you're not particularly religious or political or or whatever, this entire society is an ideology. We we take things for granted and power structures for granted and, you know, co coerce, coercion that we don't even know is there is constantly exerting its influence on us. And the only way to to see those things for what they are is to break down some egoistic barriers and break down some typical perceptory perception barriers of perception that we don't even typically think about i think that's enormously important no matter how you're doing it whether it's just sitting still and meditating or you know going for a long walk by yourself and witnessing something beautiful or taking mushrooms or getting in a float tank i, I just think mm -hmm. you need to do something to break down those barriers yeah, absolutely. That I think that that's where it starts. And, and this is why it's interesting that some of the most potent and powerful ways of breaking down the, the barriers have been um, essentially suppressed mm -hmm. by power structures that, yeah. that would be threatened by people recognizing that they've essentially been had, had a, a reality coerced upon them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and of course, I'm optimistic. I hold out hope that, you know, in the end, um, you know, the, the truth and light and harmony is going to prevail. I mean, it has to, essentially, um, because we're, you know, six billion people on this planet now, and we have to learn to get along. And, you know, it may be that nature still has some surprises in store for us. And yeah. one of the things that I'm, concerns me now is the, you know, the way the whole discussion has been hijacked. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm somebody who's been studying climate change and environmental change for really over 30 years now. And so when when I hear the claim being made over mainstream media and certain venues of, of information dissemination, uh, uh, information um, dissemination, that's what I'm trying to say, um, I get quite dismayed when I hear people repeatedly saying, well, the debate is over, there's a consensus on what's causing any change to go on. And that's just crazy because the debate literally is, is just getting started. We're just really beginning to understand all of the forces that are in confluence that are affecting the, the, the outcomes of, of the world around us. It's almost like saying because you've witnessed one phenomena of which there are probably basically limitless phenomena that you that you now understand the the whole it's like it's kind of in, in a reverse way what we were talking about with education it would be like understanding one facet of biology and saying okay i i now understand the entire ecosphere of biology that's happening on this world because i saw one scientifically and mathematically you know provable happening or something yeah well, you know, kind of what has happened is that the, the discussion has been hijacked <clears throat> towards a political agenda. And, you know, when I first heard in the late 1980s that the, that the uh, United Nations was going to establish a, uh, 
an organization for the study of climate. I thought, great, because by the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s, I had become aware of how catastrophically the climate had changed in the past. By, by the seven, with, with, with the advent of radiocarbon dating in the 50s, uh, there was a revolution in our thinking about Earth history, at least within the last 30 to 50,000 years. And prior to radiocarbon dating, models of, uh, let's see, glacial and interglacial ages were much longer and more extensive than they are at present. Hmm. Because it was believed that, you know, at the end of the Little Ice Age that occurred between throughout the course of the 19th century. This was when, when geological science was essentially born. And people like Louis Agassiz and others were actually out uh, examining in the field the recession of the glaciers that had grown, had expanded enormously during the Little Ice Age. And in fact, most studies would suggest that the glaciers, the glacier mass during the Little Ice Age was the greatest it had been in 10,000 years. In other words, the greatest that it had been since the end of the Great Ice Age, ten or 12,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you've got to understand then that a lot of this discussion about climate change is using that as a baseline. So in other words, if we take the coldest period of the last 10,000 years as our baseline, if we look at using as a baseline a, a, a period of time when the glaciers had grown worldwide bigger than they had been in 10,000 years, and that's our baseline, and we take the end of the Little Ice Age, well, yeah, you see, then the glaciers are going to be appearing to recede dramatically. The climate is going to be appearing to warm dramatically. But actually, the IPCC studies themselves suggest that the climate in the last century is warmed by three quarters of a degree, mm -hmm. three quarters of one degree centigrade. Well, at the end of the last ice age, we now know from looking at oxygen isotope ratios that were extracted from Greenland ice cores and Antarctic ice cores and supplemented by other proxies like deep sea sedimentary cores, uh, speleothems, which is the study of the stalactites and stalagmites in caves. There's a whole variety of uh, pollen studies. Uh, the, the list goes on. But what the Greenland ice cores really underscore and the rest of these proxies support is that there were phenomenally fast and extreme climate changes way beyond anything we've experienced in recent times. Again, the, the IPCC in their own published reports will say that the climate has warmed by three quarters of a degree in the last century since, since like the turn of the, the 20th century. Yet the Greenland ice cores from the GRIP and GISP programs that were, uh, took place between about 1988 and 1993. So it was 1993 when we began to get the first results of, the, of these high-resolution, highly accurate um, analysis of layer-by-layers of, of, the, of the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. Well, what it began to show was that at, repeatedly the climate would warm and cool by up to 10 to 15 degrees centigrade. And to the best of the resolution, that these were available, it occurred between one and five years. Wow. Think about it, one in five years. Now, <sighs> just for round numbers, you know, take 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 10 or 12 degrees centigrade. That's way beyond. I mean, if we do um, 12 here divided by 0.75, we're looking at 16 times the warming that has occurred in the last 100 years 
compressed into somewhere between one and five years. And nobody can really explain what was driving that level of climate change. So that's why I get really frustrated when the natural variability of climate is being left out of the discussion. Because of course, you know, carbon dioxide is one factor within a very complex equation of climate change. And what they've attempted to do is to narrow this down and say that carbon dioxide is the only factor that's worth looking at. Yeah, and that's that seems like a massive oversimplification. And then, it is. I, and I think this is something that you and I definitely talked about uh, last time we spoke. But the fact that you know ancient texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh and and stories of the Bible talking about these massive global floods being and and there's plenty of you know at least anecdotal evidence to to couple those <clears throat> happenings and those stories mm -hmm. with the timing of that of that last ice age and the massive weather shifts and it seems it just seems like that's a pretty strong indicator of there being a tie in and nobody wants to seriously discuss that. You're exactly right. Um, and yes, all of these ancient texts have described events that would could be described as apocalyptic climate or environmental changes. Uh, you know, the Bible opens basically with um, the story of the great flood, and then it concludes with the apocalypse. So it's like the whole Bible has is bookended by the front end destruction by water, the back end destruction by fire. The Greeks had their traditions of cataclysmos and ekpurosis, uh, or ekpurosis, and this was alternating, the belief in alternating destructions of the world, on the one hand by water, on the other hand by fire. And this is found um, uh, quite universally throughout um, all kinds of ancient traditions, this idea of alternating destructions of the of the earth, you know, the Mayans, um, the Aztecs, the yeah, Sumerians, yeah. you mentioned the Gilgamesh epic, and, and, and of course what he does there, it's, he, you know, it's, it's a, an, uh, a description of a great flood mm -hmm. that was a thousand years earlier than the biblical account. Mm -hmm. But there's been several hundred accounts now documented from all continents about you know, this belief in this world-destroying flood. And, and what you said earlier is definitely true about how the the stories have been kind of hijacked towards this fundamentalist lens. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, what you have now is you have you have on the one hand you have geologists who are schooled in the in the in the theories of gradualism and uniformitarianism. Right. And right. that whatever happened in the past can best be explained by reference to modern analogs, right? And it even got to the point, the, the dogmatic point, where if it wasn't seen as happening, you know, since geology started as a science, it was considered unscientific. So when, when, when geologists like J. Harlan Bretz in the 1920s and 1930s were proposing that there were these tremendous uh, cataclysmic floods out west, he was basically shunned by the geological community because they said, oh, no, 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 nothing like that could have happened because we haven't seen anything like that happen, you know, since we started watching these kind of things, you know, in the early 19th century. So therefore, it couldn't have happened. <clears throat> but eventually, 
of course, he prevailed by this dogged, uh, you know, documentation of the evidence. And, and, and it is now accepted that, yeah, these floods really happened. What I think is what has happened, though, is that we have um, a new dogma that's been imposed on it, which, again, is an attempt to fit something into a uniformitarian framework by saying, well, the flood was caused by the, uh, the draining of a, a large proglacial lake. <clears throat> and I don't know if it's really worth getting into the technical details of that in our discussion today, but for many reasons that's untenable. The primary reason being is that the, the sheer volume of water involved goes way beyond anything we've seen in modern times. There, there's literally statements saying, well, there's no reason why we can't extrapolate upwards. If we've seen a glacial lake in Iceland breaking through an ice dam, We'll just extrapolate up from that, and that will become our model for explaining these, these floods out in the Pacific Northwest. Never mind that the volume and peak discharges of these floods out west are 1,000 to 10,000 times greater than anything we've seen in modern times. Whoa. We just never mind that fact. Yeah, we'll just yeah. extrapolate upwards, and if we've seen a glacially dammed lake in Iceland break through its, through its ice dam, create a, a, a local catastrophe, yes, local catastrophe, there's no reason why we won't just extrapolate up from that and use that model to explain what we're seeing uh, in, the, in uh, the field out west. I don't think that's possible. And, and one of the purposes of the trip that Graham and I are going to go on is to actually gather data and evidence that contradicts that and shows that it's really something much greater that happened there. Have you ever tried to present any of these theories uh, to an academic audience or through oh, yes. a more academic publication? Yes, what, what was that like? Um, interesting. Um, usually a couple of different things. Um, a knee-jerk response, mm -hmm. which basically has nothing to do with the real question, whether or not glacial ice, for example, could retain water to depths in excess of 2,000 feet and pressures in excess of 960 pounds per square inch, mm -hmm. yeah. which I think is a complete impossibility. And if you talk to a glaciologist and say, could 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 ice retain water to any significant depth? Well, what they would do is they would they would turn to um, basically again modern analogs. But but the problem is is when you look at um, Iceland, for example, which is probably the preeminent place in the world where, where glaciers have held in water and, and broken, letting the, releasing the water, causing a flood. What you see there is the typical depths will be between one and 300 feet. And there was actually some work done in the 50s and 60s, theoretical work, that put a limit of, of about five to 600 feet on the depth at which glacial ice could retain water, because glacial ice is riven with fractures and what are called moulins and general porosity. It's a very porous material. And, and what's interesting is that, um, you know, the critics of this basically said, well, the man's name was uh, something Glenn, who, who did the theoretical work. And they basically said, well, you know, your, your work is, is not quite right because you're saying that theoretically it could get five or 600 feet deep. But at which point it's utterly impossible for the ice to retain water. But in reality, in the field, empirically, what we see is that it typically will fail between one and 300 feet. 
Hmm. So there's a theoretical limit of five to 600 feet. There's empirical documentation <clears throat> of dozens of, of uh, outburst floods that show that the, that the dam will usually gives away once the water reaches a couple of hundred feet in depth. Yet we're supposed to accept that this flooding out west was caused by a glacial dam holding in water that was 2,100 feet deep and had the volume of, of you know, several of the Great Lakes all put together. Over six, about 620 cubic miles of water supposedly held in by this ice dam. <clears throat> and I believe that if you talk to a civil engineer and you said, at the position where this ice dam was supposedly located, um, the valley is seven miles wide. Now, if you said to an engineer, okay, here's your, here's your task. You've got to design a dam that's going to be span, that's going to have a seven mile span and hold back a head wall of water 2,100 feet high with a basal pressure of 960 plus pounds per square inch. What material would you use? Material would you use? And he'd say, well, there is nothing. Concrete wouldn't work. That's beyond the limits of, of steel reinforced concrete with bedrock routing and intermediate abutments. It's it's beyond the capability. <clears throat> but then if you said, okay, well, you're, the medium of that you're going to get to use is glacial ice. I think they would laugh at you. Right. When I have brought this up before geologists, I usually don't get a coherent answer. Um, I, I had, on a, on a, oh, about five years ago, I went on a field trip guided by four or five geologists, and afterwards, we all had dinner together, sitting around a big table in a Mexican restaurant, and I brought this up, exactly what I just said to you, and basically what I got was a bunch of blank stares. <laughs> I mean, and these were geologists that were guiding people out into the field to explain to them the, this phenomena of this of this great flood, and and literally, I didn't get really a response, and, and one, one, um, one geologist Several of the people told me later that when I brought this up, they saw his mouth kind of fall open, <laughs> like, "Huh? Why didn't I think of that?" Yeah, you're 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 also melting melting, melting PhD melting. brains. <laughs> well, see, the PhDs they were they were indoctrinated into this idea of uniformity, you know, and that and that if if it hasn't happened in the last hundred and fifty years, it couldn't have happened. Well, maybe 65 million years ago, an asteroid hit the Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs. Okay, maybe we'll now begrud begrudgingly accept that. But the idea that something on that scale could have happened 12,000 years ago? No, no, that's that's heresy. And, you know, since um, <clears throat> 2003, evidence has been accumulating that something along those lines did happen. Yeah, and you know, I almost don't know who you would present this information to because it's not. I don't think it's enough to present this information to a geologist or you know somebody who has studied history. It really almost needs to be a panel of people because you're you're talking to you're talking about so many subjects like taking this Renaissance man approach that you know uh, somebody who's an expert in geology may not be able to see these other pieces because they're they're a product of that same education system we we're talking about where it's this you know it's this thing that's split apart and they're experts in one area they have no knowledge in another area so you know you you need to like show them a bunch of pieces of a puzzle and put them together right in front of them in a way that's 
you know, if, if they don't have any background of knowledge, that's almost impossible to do. Yeah, and what, what you're suggesting is exactly what needs to happen, an interdisciplinary approach. Yes. And, and you see, it's the geologists basically look at the ground under their feet. They see the erosion in the rocks. They see the sedimentary layers. They see the piles of sediment that have been piled up by backwashing floods. Um, they see the, car, the coolies and all of this. And they go, okay, we accept that there was <clears throat> extreme fluvial erosion that, that did this. Well, then it becomes very easy for them to go, well, we'll invoke the modern analog to explain this, which is a glacially ice dam lake and what, what the Icelanders call a Jokalops, which is an outburst flood. And we just, you know, we're, our focus is not on that mechanism. Our focus is on looking at these gravel deposits. Our focus is on looking at the, the way the rocks were, were quarried and, and transported. We're not even really going to ask the question whether uh, uh, concerning the efficacy of glacial ice to retain water at 960 plus PSI, you see. But now, if you had a consortium, if you had an interdisciplinary panel like you just suggested, where you've got a glaciologist sitting there and you've got a civil engineer sitting there who can say to the geologists, well, you know, you're maybe not an expert in 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 um the structure of glaciers, the architecture of glaciers, but glaciers are not going to be very conducive to retaining water at these kinds of pressures, see? And likewise, the civil engineer would, would reinforce that. See, then, then yeah, they might be uh, compelled to rethink um, their, their models. Um, but at this point, that scenario is well entrenched. It's been entrenched since the 1950s and 1960s. And really what it is, it's a 19th century concept. I mean, an, excuse me. Uh, yes, a 19th century concept because it was first proposed by T.C. Chamberlain in the 1890s when he was looking at, at fossil shorelines uh, along the mountains of western Montana. And he uh, theorized that there had been this great glacial lake there at one time. Well, then that idea was picked up in 1910 by J.T. Pardee with the U.S. Geological Survey, who did subsequent follow-up studies, more in-depth studies, documenting the evidence that there had been this lake. And the way he, he, he documented it was essentially by showing that there had been shorelines on the mountainsides, and then there, there were what would be consistent with lake deposits on the valley floors. This was 1910. It was his first uh, published geological paper. 32 years later, 1942, he published his second paper on his studies of what has come to be called Lake Missoula. And in these second studies, what he did was he di he discovered evidence, what he called for catastrophic drainage. In fact, the, the title of his second paper was Unusual Currents in Glacial Lake Missoula. And what he did there was he documented the fact that what he believed was that the draining of this lake had been extremely catastrophic. Because what he discovered was that there were these fields of gigantic current ripples throughout the, the, the lake basin in various places. And some of these current ripple fields are really extraordinary. I mean, there, anybody who's walked on the beach or walked on a sandbar next to a creek or river will have seen uh, current ripples. And they're usually going to be, um, you know, a few inches high in amplitude, perhaps um, three, four, five, six inches in wavelength. But these were current ripples that were 30 to 50 feet high and two to 400 feet in wavelength, which meant that there was extremely, almost inconceivably powerful currents involved. 
Well, what he what Pardee did was he picked up on the idea of T.C. Chamberlain, that there had been this glacial lake there. But then he went further and said, well, it must have drained somewhere to the west of here. And that it was a catastrophic drain. Now, I've done field traverses of the of the lake basin up, I think, a half a dozen times now. I have a different conclusion on this, is that what he was seeing and interpreted as being the draining of the lake, I believe to have been the filling of the lake. And this takes and, and places the... the um, the whole model kind of turns it around, turns it on its head in a way. But but the idea proposed by J.T. Pardee in 1942 was eventually picked up on by the ge geological community 10 to 20 years later, who accepted this idea that there had been this gigantic lake in the mountain valleys of western Montana, held in by an ice dam. Eventually the ice dam gave way and the lake drained out over southeastern Washington flowed into the Columbia River Valley and eventually made its way to the Pacific Ocean. Well, they didn't really then connect that with any uh, necessarily um, extreme event of global warming. They didn't extend uh, connect it with um, generalized ac accumulating evidence of catastrophic melting all over other places around the ice sheet. So there's now been... Uh, well-documented evidence from the Yukon and Mackenzie Rivers on the north side of the ice sheet that they were carrying catastrophic floods into the Arctic Ocean. At the same time, the Columbia River is carrying these gigantic currents into the Pacific Ocean. And one of the things we're going to do when we make this traverse from Portland to Minneapolis is we're going to follow the ice sheet and document that there are dozens and dozens of these gigantic abandoned what are called coulees. They're channels without running water in. And there's hundreds of them along the southern margin of the ice sheet showing that there was that the melting wasn't confined, you know, to one basin. It was it was ubiquitous across the whole southern margin of the ice sheet, that there were these huge currents of meltwater gushing off the ice sheet simultaneously, which of course then demands some other explanation besides this what they call a proglacial lake impounded by an ice dam. So, so given that there's all this evidence and, and you seem to have a pretty cohesive narrative for, for what this evidence is, and I imagine after this trip, you're going to have a much more complete picture of how these, these seismic shifts occurred. What, what is that going to force people to rethink? Because it's not only going to, in my mind, force people to rethink things and long held truths about, you know, the geological history of the world, which which may, you know, inevitably may kind of some people don't want to dive deep into that subject anyway. But what they don't realize is that is intimately connected to the history of mankind and what we conceive of as the history of people in this world. So so given that, you know, maybe these really fast paced cataclysms happened on Earth that would obviously wipe out pretty much everything living here what is that going to force people to have to rethink and and why is that so important well the reason i obviously think it's important is because we have we have created this infrastructure of civilization during an interval of relative geological calm and what the what the geological record shows us now is that these periods of relative calm are are relatively infrequent 
And, you know, I wish we could do some, some graphics here because I would pull up and show you some interesting stuff. And maybe the, the, we could do that in the future yeah. um, where you would be able to, because so much of this, you know, when you see the charts, the graphs, the photographs, the things, the, the satellite photography, it can really help to put this into perspective for people. Yeah, but, if you want to send me images um, in my write-up, I'll I'll add them or if there's any uh, okay, portions yes. of... Uh, of the videos you have up on YouTube that pertain to this, I could definitely embed those in there as well. I can definitely do that. I can send you some killer images. Perfect, that, perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, where I've done showing, you know, scales between like modern counterparts and their ancient analogs. I've got one that's really good showing uh, abandoned cataracts, such as, hey, have you been to Niagara Falls? No, actually, I haven't. I've never been okay, there. Well, if you could go ahead and get up there tomorrow then and check that out, then you'll really be able to appreciate what I'm going to send you. But, you know, Horseshoe Falls is what's called a cataract falls. And it, and it, it, it's the, the way that water flowing will erode, uh, a, a precipice because water flows more swift in the, in the, um, the center of the flow. Right. Um, and so it erodes faster at the center of the flow and then erodes slower as you get towards the sides. And so what it does is the erosion forms takes the form of a horseshoe. Well, anybody who's seen Niagara Falls will, will instantly recognize the, the classical horseshoe cataract shape. Well, I've got a graphic showing some of the abandoned cataracts that were in the pathway of these floodwaters out west next to or su and then superimposed upon that horseshoe falls of Niagara. Which is literally just minuscule compared to these dry, dry falls. There's wow. there, the water's no longer running there, but what you've got is just these 400 and 500 foot cliffs, four miles, five miles wide. that just utterly dwarf Horseshoe Falls in Niagara, and these were temporary flows that that did an enormous amount of erosional work, compressed into a very short time, and then when the floods were over, it left this landscape. Now. In the, uh, in the DVD of, of Cycles of Catastrophe, there's lots of images in there of, of all the stuff we're talking about here, particularly the second half gets into this. And I've got dozens of images and graphs and charts in there that are basically illustrating all of the stuff that I'm talking about here. So now I can send you some of the stuff that will be in there, um, maybe some additional stuff that I've done since then, and then you could post it. And I think it would make... Uh, it would make more informative for your listeners if they could actually visualize some of what we're talking about. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you say to somebody, you know, uh, a, a water flow of 800 million cubic feet per second or a billion cubic per feet per second, you don't have any concept, no, right? Not at no, all, no. Well, one of the things that I try to use to, con to convey is, is that if you remember in 1993, there was catastrophic floods on the Mississippi River. In fact, they were the biggest floods on the Mississippi River, I think, since the 1927 floods. And it caused an enormous amount of economic destruction. This was, you know, 10, now 11 years ago. Anybody can Google the 1993 floods on the Mississippi River and, and, and research that, find out about that. It, the, the peak discharges um, towards the southern reaches of the, of the river were just above a million cubic feet per second right? A million cubic feet. And these were some of the biggest modern current flows ever uh, documented in, in the last century. 
Okay, I think they, they speculate that the 1927 floods may have been a little bit bigger than the 1993 floods. But in round numbers, you can think of the 1993 floods as 1 million cubic feet per second. Okay. Okay, so now what we're talking about in these other floods is anywhere from 800 to 1,000 times greater than that. So if you can take the largest documented flood in, in America in the last century, a million cubic feet per second, and, and raise that by three orders of magnitude so that you've got a thousand. Of, and, and, and the other factor is, is that when we're talking about velocity here, there's a, there's a great disparity as well because the flows of the Mississippi River during this flood may have been five miles per hour. Some of these current flows out in these various meltwater floods were flowing between 60 and 80 miles an hour. So their erosive potential was just extreme, extraordinary. Now, the question becomes, we, we know that there was this huge mass of ice covering North America. A few thousand years later, it's gone. Well, the thing is, is it requires energy to melt ice, requires heat energy. And the problem is, is that nowhere on the planet today is there anywhere enough heat energy to melt ice at the rate at which that ice disappeared. In other words, if you were to look at Canada now, you know that there's not an ice cap over Canada two miles thick, right? If right. It was, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're in Milwaukee, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so where, where you're located would have been under several thousand feet of ice. Right. Yeah. Obviously, it's it's gone. Right. You, you know, I was I was actually this exact thing I was explaining to some people uh, last night. We were sitting just sitting around a table having some drinks, and I was explaining like, try to conceive of that amount of pressure. Try to conceive of that massive amount of ice. It's it's one. It's exactly like you're saying. You you can't even comprehend the sheer power of that right it, it yeah it's 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 difficult if not impossible so you you've got to try to um use whatever means is necessary and and i would like to um you know have enough funding that i could uh, get some you know um state-of-the-art animators to come in and and <laughs> you know do on the level of a hollywood blockbuster actually some of the movies that have come out recently are showing some of the movies of catastrophism and so on that, that deal with catastrophic themes are actually showing events that were, would have been similar to the scale that we're seeing. I, I've had a tough time with some of these movies because I think that the, the spin they put on this sometimes gets so ridiculous. Like, um, what was it, The Day After Tomorrow? Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, folks. A uh, uh, hundred parts per million increase in 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 an atmospheric trace gas is not going to cause all that, you know. It may it's going to definitely cause have effects, but it's not going <laughs> to it's not going to cause New York to freeze over and tsunamis to to wash over cities and all of this because of rising sea level. However, those sort of things did happen. You see, um, you know, there's. Um, evidence now emerging from all the coastlines of the world that there have been these enormous tsunamis, tsunamis that would be beyond the scale of, of earthquakes to produce or undersea volcanic eruptions. And um, I, uh, in this, in the um, interview that I did with Joe Rogan back in May, I brought some of this up and it, and it uh, 
several people objected to it and said, well, there had been studies that had disproved the claims that I made. But then I did an extensive response to that to show that, no, there were studies that were criticizing it and calling it into question, which is what you know science is supposed to do, because when somebody proposes some new theory that particularly has these extraordinary elements to it, yeah, it's you're supposed to to do everything you can to try to um, you know, call it into question to critique it and so on, because that's how science works. That's how it advances. The 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 uh, research that was citing was far from disproving the the contention that there had been these giant tsunamis on several of the coastlines, particularly on southern Madagascar. So I did an extensive um, response to uh, the claim that, well, what I had said about the tsunamis had been disproven because I. The, the research that had actually been cited by one of the online critics, I was totally familiar with. I'd already taken that into account. I'd already read uh, those reports and had factored those into my thinking. So somebody listening to it said, oh, well, they, they Googled one thing. They found one article online that, that, that contradicted what I said. And so, therefore, you know, that was the, the end of the matter. So I felt like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do an extensive uh, detailed, elaborate response to this. Mm -hmm. And it's posted online. It, it, you'd find it interesting reading, I think. Um, but many of the things that I've said have been challenged. Um, and that's the way it's supposed to work. And, you know, and I've always welcomed um, informed criticism of anything that I say, because I don't claim to have the final word on all of this. What I do know, though, is that a lot of the models that are the dominant models now have lots of of holes in. They have lots of inconsistencies, inconsistencies, contradictions, both theoretical and empirical. And it's fair to question those. It's fair to question assumptions about the uniformity of the climate and the environment. And what you asked about earlier, I don't want to get too far away from it. Obviously, I think here the past is the key to the future. And, and if we look at the, the ice core models, what they seem to be suggesting is that intervals of relative interglacial warmth, such as we've been experiencing for the last eight or 10,000 years, are relatively infrequent within the last couple of million years. And in fact, they appear that they, that they the longest ones have, that, have, that we have now documented of the last quarter million years seem to be, you know, between six and 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. And we've already been going 10,000 years during the Holocene since the end of the last ice age. Yes. And so there's no you know, there's no guarantee that um, something's not going to happen again. Now, I think that, that the future of environmentalism is that we expand our thinking from a purely terrestrial-based environmentalism to basically recognizing that, that our planet is part of a much larger system that involves the sun, all of the other planets, the asteroid belt, uh, the, the Kuiper disk, the Oort cloud, all of these things are working together. And... One of the things that I'm dismayed about is in all the discussions of climate change that have occurred over the last 20 years, again, the focus is on the human contribution. And most definitely, no question, we humans are influencing the climate. That's not the issue. We are. No question. But the point is, is that there are other factors in play besides the human contribution. And what has happened is that the focus is on human contribution and we have huge amounts of government money being appropriated towards the end of demonstrating a human contribution 
which is a good thing because we're learning about our own imprint, but it's a bad thing to the extent that all of the other factors are being excluded from the conversation. And if somebody tries to bring up those factors, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're subject to name calling. And, you know, one of the most ridiculous things now is talking about climate deniers because there's nobody. I, I hear that now all the time. Oh, he's a climate denier. What? <laughs> Are you telling me that there's somebody out there who, who denies the existence of the climate? Well, what does that mean, a climate denier or a climate change denier? And I go, like, I've been called a climate, oh, you're a climate change denier. Wait, what? I'm a climate change denier? I've been saying that the climate has been changing extremely and catastrophically over and over again. How in the world am I a, am I a climate change denier? I'm just saying that there are other factors besides the anthropogenic one that we have to be looking at here. See? So yeah, they've, they've yeah. tried to strip the whole conversation down to this oversimplified, you know, humans are causing climate. And we know that for the last 50 years, humans have been the, 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 the main cause of climate change. Well, guess what? We're going to ignore thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of climate change records that precede the last 50 years in order to put out this reality that the only way we're going to save the planet is by drastically reducing our fossil fuel consumption. Now, I'm not opposed to reducing fossil fuel consumption, but what I am opposed to is hijacking the science to say that carbon dioxide is the only thing, because here, here's the major contradiction in that, this, this whole scenario that's being presented. And, and when I send you some of the graphs, I think you're going to be able to see it for yourself. If we go back throughout the Holocene, the last 10,000 years, what we see is that, that the ice core records show unambiguously that the climate has been constantly changing between 2 and 4 degrees centigrade, back and forth. There's no place within the last 10,000 years where you can see a stable baseline of climate. It's been fluctuating up a couple of degrees warmer than it is now, a couple of degrees colder, back and forth for 10,000 years. When we get back to the Pleistocene, which terminated between 10 and 12,000 years ago, we suddenly see the magnitude of climate change jumping by a factor of 10. We now see climate changing between 10 and 15 degrees centigrade, right? We see these enormous spikes of climate change going back several hundred thousand years, right? Now, we are being told that prior to the Industrial Revolution, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere were stable at 280 parts per million. And they're saying that this stability of carbon dioxide concentrations goes back, you know, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years. And it didn't change until we started burning fossil fuels. And now it's gone up to 390 par parts per million and approaching 400 parts per million. Okay, well, here's the problem. If we go back 10,000 years ago and we suddenly see climate changing, swinging back and forth 10, 12 degrees centigrade, well, if carbon dioxide has not changed at 200 and stayed stable at 280 parts per million, then it isn't CO2 that's driving those changes, is it? Right. If it is CO2 that's driving those changes, then what we have to assume is that there's some completely unrecognized giant source of CO2 that's contributing CO2 to the atmosphere, driving those changes, which I don't think is plausible. But those are the only two scenarios. Either there's something other than CO2 driving the climate, or it's CO2, in which case 
the the uh, ice core data is wrong, showing that it was stable at 280 parts per million, and there was some giant reservoir of CO2 available to pump enormous amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere to cause a warming of 10 or 12 degrees centigrade in less than five years. So that right there is the is the the basic fatal flaw in the whole assumption. You see, either carbon dioxide was stable before the Industrial Revolution, in which case it doesn't explain the prehistoric climate changes, or it was not stable and there was massive fluctuations of carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere that completely go beyond anything we've done through fossil fuel burning. So which is it? And they have never addressed that contradiction. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you know, it, it, this is going to be a weird thing to say, but in, in some ways, this gives me comfort in a, in, in a strange sense, because I kind of like when human knowledge is humbled and when we are, you know, that that veil of mystery is is not as lifted as we think it is in terms of how well we understand the world and how well we understand ourselves and, and what's going on. And the fact that it is more of an ongoing you know, battle and, and learning experience and we give credit for, I, I actually enjoy that. And I'm, I'm curious if, if it were up to you and, and you, you know, were, you had, you did have this funding or, or you did have oversight of all of the governmental resources, where should we shift our attention and our resources in your mind? So in other words, if I was the supreme dictator of the world, <laughs> yes, right? exactly. Okay, now we're now we're talking. This yes, is, yeah, yes. Okay. <clears throat> Basically, what I would do is this: I would, um, no, that, that's a loaded question. But first of all, I believe that it's very important that we expand our civilization from where we're at now to becoming a cosmic civilization. I'll put it that way. I mean. You know, when I was a kid, the one of the things that really excited me was the space program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, following the space program, uh, you know, from the time I was in grade school, you know, I was supercharged with the idea that we were going to go and put a man on the moon. And I thought, you know, so, you know, when we got to like 1969, I've got kind of this, this split allegiance. On the one hand, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, the, um, you know, the, the Apollo program, the Gemini program, the Mercury program, putting this man on the moon. On the other hand, I was disgusted by the Vietnam War and, you know, the imperialism that was really just going crazy at, at that time. And and um, so I had this kind of split allegiance. Well, what happened was, you know, Nixon basically decommissioned the Apollo program in order to raise the money to pay for the Vietnam War. I mean, the, the 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 momentum that we had in the 1960s uh, moving moving uh, towards in, into the cosmos was basically uh, sidetracked by by our foreign policy we had to pay for the Vietnam War and that was one of the places that he took it so we had we built this in huge fleet of of these rockets you know the Saturn rockets and they were just decommissioned you know, you can just go over to Huntsville in the, at the Space Museum there, and you'll see the rusted hulks of the Saturn rockets that we invested billions of dollars in building this infrastructure, and then just abandoned it, left them out to rust. Wow. And if you go and you look at the at the projections, post in the in the you know in the in the heady days of Apollo and the in the, the the moon program was, 
you know, by 1980s, we well, by the end of the 70s, they had proposed a, a permanent lunar presence, a, 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 um, a base on the moon, um, you know, mission to Mars, a lot of things that never came to, to be simply because we lost the vision, we lost the will, we got distracted and a lot of other stuff. It, now, it's even become a joke. I, I mean, recently, I mean, the, given this was not said in the proper context and it was not described in the proper way with any kind of intelligence or, or reason even. But Newt Gingrich, I remember him recently saying that when he was running for president, one of the things he would want to do is create a permanent established established colony on the moon in his presidency and everyone just laughed at him and you know in one yes. way like yeah yeah how can you be talking about fucking civilizations on the moon with all these problems we have here but i think when we start having the conversations that you and i are having the necessity to spread humanity beyond earth becomes pretty obvious yes and and you know in in the 1970s <laughs> When uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the with the work of Gerard O'Neill, uh, uh, he was a Princeton physicist who, with his graduate students, began looking at fu future prospects in space. And and what their studies revealed, and has only been confirmed by countless additional studies, and what we now know about this the, the, the cosmic environment, is that space is essentially an infinite resource. Material resources, energy resources, essentially are infinite. You know, we can talk about fossil fuels on the Earth, and and even though there may be much vaster deposits that had been previously estimated, nonetheless, at, at some point, it is a finite resource. And once we have moved, essentially, outside the five thousand mile deep gravity well that separates terrestrial life, terrestrial existence from cosmic existence. What we have is essentially infinite resources at our doorstep. And, and <clears throat> you know, one of the things that, that O'Neill and his colleagues and his students realized in the, in the mid-1970s was that, you know, and this was when, when interest in solar energy was just beginning. Well, you know, the, the main problem was solar energy. And, and I went and took one of the first university courses ever offered in solar energy design back in 1980. Hmm. And the fundamental problem with solar energy has not changed since then. And that's its variability, its unpredictability. The fact that there's a day-night cycle, the fact that there are clouds, uh, you know, the fact that, um, you know, it, it's intermittent, right? That there are seasonal changes that, that li limit the access to, to solar energy. Also the fact that, you know, you've got the, the troposphere and the stratosphere that scatter the solar energy and so what actually reaches the surface is only a small part of what actually impinges upon the outer stratosphere but as soon as you get outside that gravity well as soon as you're 4,000 5,000 miles out if you were to put a one square meter solar collector in space it's now going to collect roughly the same amount of solar energy as a solar collector set up in Death Valley in the middle of the summer at high noon on a clear day wow. times 10 wow times 10 you see, that seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, when you talk about solar energy, yeah, where we're going to where solar energy is really going to become viable is is once we've set up industry out in free space. And this is what O'Neill and, and his colleagues were proposing, you know, way back in the seventies, mm -hmm. in the early seventies, early to mid seventies, that that we could essentially by the turn of the century 
transplant our industrial infrastructure into free space wow. and open up whole new realms of 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 potential uh, of what we could do in, in the in the in the free space because in first of all you're out there you're in a gravity free environment and you're in a in a uh, you know a moisture free environment yeah, that so complete vacuum you're in a complete vacuum so you could literally produce machines that would would run almost infinitely Right. Yeah. Down here on the in, in the bottom of the gravity well on the terrestrial surface, you know, we have machines break down. You know, if you don't regularly put oil in your car, what happens? You know, your engine locks up. Right. Well, all of industry in space could be run by solar energy. And the thing is, is I remember when this first came out, I would say this to people because I, I was tremendously excited about it and thinking, wow, you know, we, we could be doing this. We could. We could be harvesting the resources of space and thereby relieve the earth because everything that is needed to create civilization, an extraterrestrial civilization, is already out there. See, it's only in the initial stages of this process where we would need to transport material resources from the earth because everything that we have on the earth is, is found in space, you know, and so... Now, yeah, when that, that was proposed, there was a planet discovered that was they think it's made completely of diamond. You hear that, about that? Like just like ridiculous things. And I, I mean, I guess that would bring up interesting questions about you know who would have access to the resources and who would have access to the the vessels that we could send out there to harvest those resources and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And those are definitely questions that would come up at the time. But on the on the greater scope of things, imagine if you know society just had access to the things that we need to run it without having to physically harvest it and you know damage our own ecosystem in the process of like fracking every last bit of fossil fuel out of the ground. I mean, we could we could essentially start allocating our time and resources toward all the social problems that exist on earth. And, you know, it's the, it seems like the possibilities would be pretty limitless if we could do that. Well, I'd like to, you know, almost do a whole program sometime on discussing the, the possibilities there. But, you know, when I first started proposing some of these ideas, cause that I was tremendously excited about say 1975, 76, here was the typical response. Well, why should we be going off in space doing all of this and that when we've got so many problems here on earth? And basically, my response then was essentially this, my same response now. Well, what's happened in the interim almost 40 years now is that the problems on Earth have just become more intractable. We've got more people consuming more resources. Um, we've got, you know, even though wars have gone down, we've still got ethnic conflicts. And really what it comes down to, I mean, like the whole thing that's going on in the Middle East right now is primarily uh, a conflict over over terrain. It, it's a conflict over land. That's basically what's driving that. More so than rel religious differences certainly play into it, but it's primarily a conflict over over land, over terrain, over space. Um, but, you know, my response to those people who say, well, we've got, we've got to solve the problems here on Earth is that, well, maybe the solution to the problems on Earth is that we expand to a higher dimension of existence. And and in the interim, what happened was 1980, you know, the, the Alvarez team discovered that layer of iridium in, in Gubbio, Italy, 
which led them to believe that the Cretaceous period of geological history was terminated by a great asteroid impact. And then that created a whole controversial, uh, you know, scientific uh, debate that raged for the next 10 years until finally they discovered and dated the crater sunken in the Yucatan. Well, I always mark that 1980 point as, as a major departure because prior to that, strict uniformitarian thinking prevailed with very little cracks within the edifice of, of gradualism. With 1980 coming along and the discovery of that iridium, and the discovery that one of the great mass extinctions that had been well documented in the history of the Earth may have been caused by something from outside, something from space, that changed the paradigm. Well, what's happened is that in the ensuing, you know, 30 years, 34 years now, what we've discovered is that once we begin to recognize that there was this exogenic factor, something from outside, it had been a major variable within the, the, the equation of terrestrial change. Once we begin to recognize that and, 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 and look there, we realize that, hey, this may be the very dominant thing. This may be the thing that's been driving most of the mass extinctions. It may be, have driven plate tectonics. It may have been involved in um, creating mantle plumes of, of climate change, of volcanism, of geomagnetic field fluctuations. All of these things have been tied credibly to impacts of things from space. Okay, so when O'Neill and his colleagues proposed in the mid-70s that our future lay in becoming a cosmic civilization, the fact that Earth gets periodically uh, bombarded by things from space was not part of the equation. What we now know is that we have been regularly bombarded, and in fact, I even argue that the most likely agent of those changes at the end of the last ice age was exogenic. You see, and there's a group called the Holocene Working Group and others, um, uh, uh, Mike Bailey and Bruce Massey and a, a, uh, um, Dallas Abbott and a whole group of these geologists, maverick geologists that have been proposing for a decade now that Earth has been uh, encountered these things from space far more frequently than anybody had previously realized. Yeah. And. And the evidence that's accumulating seems to be confirming. It seems to be supporting their side in in this in this discussion. And 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 what's interesting here again is that um, the things that would be most dangerous. I don't know if you just remember uh, last month when the the beast flew by at seven hundred thousand miles from the Earth, and it was thirteen hundred feet in diameter, mm -hmm. which makes it what about two hundred times the volume of the Tunguska object. Well, if something like that struck Earth, it would have global climatological consequences. It would utterly decimate an area about the size of Texas. Just literally, you know, it'd be Mount St. Helens scale of devastation, but to the size of the state of Texas. Wow. And you see, while geologists have been looking at the rock record under our feet and realizing that there are these great discontinuities in the geological history of the Earth, these great interruptions, paleontologists have been documenting that Species haven't been going to extinct gradually, one species at a time, but there have been wholesale mass extinctions that have wiped out uh, whole flora and fauna and mass very in, in a geological instant. At the same time, astronomers are looking at, at space and discovering that there's a whole lot more stuff flying around out there than anybody had imagined 20, 30, 40 years ago. Planetary geologists are looking at the surfaces of other silicate planets and bodies in the solar system and realizing that ubiquitous, the most, the most 
ubiquitous surface feature on all of them is impact craters, right? Now, if you were to strip away the biosphere in the oceans and the sedimentary rock layer from the earth, we would look like the moon, you see? So all of these things have been emerging on, on, on these different venues of, of knowledge and information, but what's missing is integrating that into any kind of a coherent worldview. And part of the problem again now is because all of this new insight and information is being shunted off of the table and out of the discussion in order to focus the entire discussion on the anthropogenic imprint. See? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's exactly like you're you're saying, you know, that the earth has a cold right now or is being hit by a series of pinpricks from within right now, but it's like we're forgetting the fact that there are gunshots going off all around us that could yes. instantly hit one of us in the head. It's just, it, it's like we're in a war zone of constant, you know, of constant peril, and we're just oh, forgetting that's... about the fact that we stubbed yep. our toe right now. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. It is like we are in a cosmic war zone. That is going to do it for part one, my friends. Part two will be out in just a few days. Uh, in the meantime, go over to sacredgeometryinternational.com and get your mind blasted further. And go follow them on Twitter at sacredgeoint. Go like them on Facebook. Please do the same for us at Midwest Real, facebook.com forward slash Midwest Real. And please go check out the new Midwest Real net and click a bunch of stuff and go to the nearest human and just do something kind and unexpected but don't be creepy about it see you soon <laughs>